Welcome to Trading with Rainer Show, the trading podcast where you'll gain trading insights to level up your trading so you can beat the markets. Let's start boosting your trading knowledge from your friend, Rainer Teo. Hey, hey, what's up, my friend? So just a heads up, today's episode is actually taken from one of my training videos. So let's get started. So in today's episode, we have Kevin Davey in the house, baby. So in case you do not know who that is, right? Well, Kevin is a World Cup trading champion. He's a full-time trader and an investment manager. And if you've been in a trading circle for a while, you know that in the world of trading, it's hard to find someone who's a World Cup trading champion and at the same time, who's willing to share his secrets, right? So this is why I have to get Kevin in, you know, to bribe him, you know, to pull him in and say, hey, Kevin, let's do this, right? And he, he said, okay, and this is why in today's episode, right, here's a breakdown or an overview of what you'll learn, right? So we talk about first and foremost, Kevin's growing up years, his formative years and how he made the transition to full-time trading. Then, of course, we talk about, you know, what is algo trading and how it works. So for those of you who are not familiar with algo trading, don't worry, it's nothing complicated or complex to get you overwhelmed. We explain it in a very simple step-by-step manner, even a 10-year-old can understand, yeah? We also talk about the surprising truth to why Kevin has 200 trading systems and he trades about 30 to 35 at any one point in time. We also talk about how to tell when your trading strategy has stopped working right, and what you should do about it. We also dig into you know, the reason why he avoids trading the stock market and it's not what you think. Plus, we will get him right to share you know how to tell whether algo trading is suitable for you because let's face it, right, it may not be suitable for everyone. So how do you know whether you're suitable for algo trading? Right? That's what he'll share as well. And of course, right, how do you get started with algo trading, especially if you have no experience? So Kevin, right, is coming in with, you know, years and decades of experience to give it his all in today's episode. Sounds good? Then let's get started. Alrighty. So Kevin, welcome to the show. And for those of you who are watching, this is actually, right, the first guest we have, right, on the podcast. So welcome, Kevin. Happy to have you. Wow. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm the first guest, but thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So one thing to share, Kevin, is that uh, I appreciate you, actually, because, you know, I know that you're, you're a World Cup uh, trading champion in the futures market, and it's not easy. And what's really remarkable that made me, you know, want to you know, salute to you is because you also write multiple trading books on trading to help retail traders. And trust me, I've written books myself. One book is, you know, almost one thing in your life already. And I believe you have write multiple of such books, right? You know, helping retail traders out there in the world. Plus, right, having your credentials of winning the World Cup of, World Cup of Trading. So thank you, right, for your effort, right? Trying to educate us. I appreciate you, Kevin. Oh, hey, I appreciate the, the kind words. Thanks. Oh, great. So let's, uh, let's kick things out, right? Just wanting to hear a little bit about your your life, right? You know, so I think most of the time that we people will ask, you know, how do you get started in trading? Why do you become a trader? But let's take things maybe a little bit behind, right? In the earlier years, right? So if I were to ask you, right, Kevin, to give me one word to describe your childhood, maybe that'll be between five to 12 years old. What would that one word be? Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. I would probably say playful. And the reason I would say that is because back when I was that age, kids played outside all the time. You know, we didn't have phones. We didn't have computers. We didn't even have, you know, video games yet. They were just starting to come out. And so I'd end up spending a lot of my time playing outside. I wasn't very good at things like baseball or football, but I enjoyed it. And that's, that's 
kind of the way my childhood was, was spending just a lot of time outside, which unfortunately, you know, a lot of kids now just don't get that. Just don't do that. They're so tied to their technology. And I think that's a little bit sad. I can resonate with it, right? So, you know, always looking at the phone when I see people on the street, they look at their phone instead of, you know, embracing the now, the present. And I think it's a waste. And like you, I have kids. I try to, as much as, much as possible, educate them and at times, you know, restrain the amount of screen time that they, they are watching, yeah? Yeah, okay. that's tough to do though, isn't it? It's, it's a it's learning process. To, uh, hold them back. Yeah. So what about, okay, let's say your teenage years, right? Maybe between 13 to 21 years. So if I were to ask you one word to describe your teenage years, what would that one word be? I would say driven. And what I mean by that is just high school and then college, university, you know, I was I was driven to do well in school and try to get good grades and try to end up with a, a good degree out of university. And so that was just a lot of my focus was just trying to do well with all my studies, hoping it would prepare me for, you know, further down the, the road. And what was interesting is in university, I went into engineering. Specifically, it was aerospace engineering. So it was like designing aircraft and where I ended up. And I was in that field for probably 20 years. That goes a little bit later, but I ended up somewhere completely different, which was in trading. But some of the lessons I learned, the persistence, you know, dealing with frustration when I was studying in my teens kind of helped out in my later life. So I'm hearing the word driven, right? So I'm just thinking, is there anything that happened that made you driven? Because I think, at least from the people around me, right? And we were teenagers, right? Almost none of us are driven. We just want to play, have fun. And, and the word driven is something rare, if you ask me. So was there any anything that happened that made you feel, you know, man, you know, let me ace my studies. Let's do this. Yeah, I think it. it's a lot of it was probably just my my family, like you know, my mom and dad. My mom was always pushing me really hard. And my dad, he was great. He was a firefighter and he also owned a pest control company. And he did, so he basically had two full-time jobs. And so he never pushed me and said, hey, you got to do good in school. But he, what he did was he set an example by just the way he lived his life. And by the way, during those teenage years, well, so some of the teenagers, he actually endured three open heart surgeries. So he first had one when I was, I think, in, I was seven or eight, another one when I was a teenager in high school, and then he had another open heart surgery in his 30s. And he never complained. You know, he just kept pushing on. And I think a lot of that was a lot of the fact that I was driven was just from watching him and seeing what he was doing. And, you know, that kind of led to me being driven. Wow. wow. I think that sends a very powerful message. Like, like as a parent myself, right? sometimes I wonder how can I best educate my kids? But as what you mentioned, right? Sometimes actions is really the thing that matters. You can say, 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 say all you want, but if your action doesn't tally with, I mean, if your saying doesn't tally with your action, the kids will probably follow your actions, not your saying. So I think leading by example is such, it's a, such a classic, right? But it works in your yes. case as well, as you've mentioned. Can you hear me, Kevin? I'm starting to yes. lose you a little bit. 
Can see me? Oh, yes. Okay, great. So I think it's just maybe the data is slow. Okay, no worries. So yeah, earlier you mentioned aerospace engineering. So so I guess that's your first job? That was that would be my first real job out of university. So, you know, my first professional job, obviously before that, when I was in high school, I, you know, worked at a local ice cream store. I stocked canned goods at a convenience store. I worked as a bus boy, you know, did all the the typical first jobs for people. But yeah, I was an engineer for an aerospace company in California. And that was my first quote unquote, you know, career type job. So what were you doing back then as aerospace engineer? So some of it I can't really talk about because I had secret clearance and, uh, okay. but you know, it, it was basically defense related projects of designing, you know, the next generation of air of military aircraft. For example, I also worked on a project that was kind of interesting. It was, this was when people were worried about commercial airliners being shot at with missiles, you know, like surface air missiles. And I was on a project where we developed an object that would be launched out of a commercial aircraft and it would intercept a missile you know, and protect the aircraft. And so it was things like that. That was my first job. And then after a couple of years, I went more into the space part of it. And I was working for a small company in California that actually made, in, this is going to sound weird, inflatable balloons for outer space. And you might say, well, that's weird. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> it was like, it basically like a, a mylar balloon. And what you do is you fold it up and it, it becomes really small. You put some kind of material like mothballs, crushed up mothballs in it. And then when you send it to outer space, because it's a vacuum out there, what'll happen is that little container, you know, that little package will expand and be huge. And what it would do is they could make shapes and it could resemble, for example, missile warhead in outer space. And so other people would then see it and, you know, other defense people, and then they would design their tracking systems and their laser systems or whatever to track that incoming nuclear warhead or, you know, simulated nuclear warhead. So it was kind of neat. And we also did some experiments that actually flew on the space shuttle where we, I was involved with a project that designed a huge antenna that was an inflatable antenna and it was deployed in space. So there were a lot of, a lot of little different projects that I worked with. I heard earlier you mentioned the commercial airline where you have something sticking out to prevent <laughs> missile effect. I haven't seen that yet. Is it like live right now? Or that is still kind of like in, in the books? No, it actually, <laughs> it was a great idea. It just never got implemented. And it was, the company I was working for was kind of a, it was a larger defense firm. And what ended up happening was there was a lot of infighting between a group in California and a group in Georgia that made a component and everybody, you know, each group thought they should be in charge of it. And, you know, doing that kind of turned the government off to it. And they said, well, you know, you guys aren't really serious or, you know, this isn't really going to happen because ultimately the government would have funded it. So it ended up 
getting canceled, never really got built. We ran some tests. That was about it. But that was a lot of uh, things in the defense world are like that, that they would get designed and people would, you know, be all crazy gung-ho about, oh, this is going to be great. And then it would die and never get built. And that, unfortunately, was just part of the business. And why do you say, or rather, what's some of the biggest reasons to why projects just just fail? Is it because of other funding issues, right? Or there are other more pressing matters to pursue? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I was involved with was was pure research and development. And so we were always fighting with other projects, not only within our company, but within the whole defense industry as a whole. And, you know, the government would pick and choose which ones to fund, which ones not. And so then it starts getting into a lot of politics and, you know, may not be the best ideas that go forward, but maybe a politician has, there's an idea with a company that's in his district. And so he's going to push for it to get funded and things like that. So it was really kind of survival of the fittest, but a lot of times from what I saw, the best ideas didn't always get put to the front. They, they died a lot of times. And, but, I, I suppose that's the way it is with R and D at pharmaceutical companies. You know, with drugs, probably the same way with R and D at places like Amazon, where you know they're deciding on new features, and maybe it isn't the best features they get put forward, but it's you know sometimes the best political ideas that get put forward. Hmm. So I, I hear the word "best" a few times. So how do you like maybe define? What's the best feature? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. It, it's it's very subjective. You know, you might think, well, hey, protecting commercial airplanes, that's the best idea. But somebody else might say, no, coming up with some kind of new guidance system for an aircraft, that's a better idea. And, you know, sometimes it comes down to money, I'm sure. But a lot of times I don't know why different things got picked that, you know, at the time I was just, you know, a, a mid-level engineer. I wasn't one of the top decision makers. And those are the people who got to make the choices. Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious. So you studied aerospace engineering and you help develop such ideas. So when you are working in such a firm, how, how often are you like dealing with math each day? Like, you know, because from what I, at least my own my own knowledge is that you know, will you be like looking at the calculations, the equations on a day to day basis, or there is more to it than just numbers and equations in the real world working? Uh, well, a lot of it, a lot of it was numbers, a lot of it was calculations, computer programs, simulations. You know, you had to do a lot of that. But the other thing I found with a lot of engineering work was a lot of it was promotion and sort of self-marketing. And so to give you some examples, like it wasn't necessarily that you came up with a good idea, but it was how you could stand up in front of people and present that idea and get them over to your side and make them understand what was going on. I remember the first time I ever had to do it, it was, I believe it was a three or four star general who had come to visit 
our plant and there were lots of pretty high level people at our plant. And somehow I was chosen to talk on a certain topic and you can believe I was scared to death. It was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, these are some pretty high up people. But that taught me the importance of putting yourself out there and trying to get your ideas across where, you know, they didn't, those guys didn't care about the math. You know, they assumed the math and all the programming and everything was right. They wanted just to hear the ideas and, you know, envision it kind of thing. And a similar thing was part of that program to develop the commercial airline helper, you know, the, for the missiles was I worked with somebody in another department to create a computer-based simulation where it was actually a graphic one, which nowadays you could do it, you know, it would look like any kind of video game. But back then that was a big deal. And so I created, helped create this simulation where I could run cases of, hey, the plane's flying like this, and then somebody shoots a missile at it. And then you see the missile coming at you if you look different camera views, you know, simulated camera views. And so I'd be running those and people would draw, would see it, you know, in this computer area and higher ups would see it. And that's what got them fascinated. So again, there was math behind all the ideas, but what really brought it out was the presentation of it and the promotion of it. Which, you know, that's, you know, we were talking about kids earlier. That's one of the things big on teaching my kids. Like I have a daughter who wants to be a writer. I said, well, realize being a writer, hey, that's great. But in the end, if you want to write books or whatever, probably 80% of your time is going to be promoting the book, not actually writing the book. It's, you know, that's what it ends up becoming is promoting yourself and putting yourself out there. And that's true in a lot of things in life. How to sell yourself in essence, right? How yeah, absolutely. Which I never, as an engineer, you know, I took one class that I remember in university for presentations. You know, it was like, and you did one stand-up presentation and that was it in four years. And I look back on it now, I'm like, wow, uh, you know, they just did not prepare me enough for doing that sort of thing. You know, there should have been a lot more. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but that's all, you know, salesmanship and, and promotion. That's not real work. That's what I used to think. And as it turns out, as I've gotten older, I've realized that promoting your work, promoting what yourself, what you do, no matter what your career is, is a huge part of being successful. Well said, I couldn't agree more, right? Not just in trading or, or business, even as an employee, right? If you want to sell your ideas to your uppers, you know, to, you know, get certain things moving, you have to sell, sell the other ideas, sell yourself. And that also helps with promotion, right? Within the company, if you can sell yourself right. better than your peers, even though as much as I hate to, to, or as much as we hate to admit it, sometimes your work quality may not be as good as your peers, but if you can sell yourself better, you have a higher chance of that promotion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people tend to think that it's not genuine when you do that and, and they feel bad about like promoting themselves. But ultimately, like we we're just talking about, the best ideas don't always 
become reality. It's, it's the ones that are promoted the best that are good ideas. And that's how, what people have to realize. So you say you're 20 years in the aerospace engineering before, you know, you got a second career in, in trading. So how did that transition happen? Well, it took a long time. And it started actually when I was working as an engineer. I was in California and I received something in the mail. This wasn't email. This was like paper mail. And it was a, like a 15, 20 page booklet that talked about trading and said, oh, if you had bought sugar here and sold it here, you would have been a millionaire kind of thing. And I saw that and I was like, wow, this is, this is neat. And, it, you know, I didn't even know what futures or commodities were really, but that started it. And I started digging into it and trying stuff and losing money and then trying other stuff and losing money. And it, one, it was hard to get good information or any information, really. There were a few books and, and that kind of thing, but there was no internet. You know, there were there was no trading software where you could just pull up a chart and throw a moving average on it. You know, back then you'd get, if you wanted futures data, it was either the daily newspaper, it would give you the prices for the previous day, or there were some subscription services that once a week would physically mail you a copy of charts. And then you could add to them and draw your own lines on them and that kind of thing. And that's what it was back then. And so that started my obsession, I guess, with the markets. And from that point on, I just kept trying stuff. Usually I would try in the real world and lose money. So I'd be like, oh, okay, you can't do that. And I'd move on to something else. You know, for the longest time, I thought I was going to create the ultimate money machine where it would be some kind of indicator or pattern or whatever that would just make a ton of money and I could just sit back and just wait for the money to to flow in. Of course, everybody thinks that and it just doesn't happen. But eventually I started getting a little bit better in it, had some huge setbacks along the way, but I was doing all that part-time. So it was it was my part-time hobby. It was really the only thing I did outside of work. And this was before kids and, you know, they took up time and that kind of thing. And eventually I, I got to the point where I was pretty decent part-time trading. And that led me to enter the World Cup trading contest. And I was able to finish second a couple of years and first one year. And right around that time after that, I started to feel like, yeah, you know, maybe I can do this full time. And the way it worked with my job, the company, I was in charge of quality assurance and also engineering for this like five, four or 500 person firm that made fuel pumps for aircraft, which was a pretty high, high stress job now looking at it. Because if the fuel pump fails on a jet engine, the jet engine stops and that's not a good thing. So we, we had super tricks, strict tolerances and that kind of thing. And we we're always worried about bad product escaping. And But eventually our company got sold to a big company and I had the opportunity to walk out of there with 
basically an extra year's salary because I stayed on through the transition. And that just turned out to be the perfect time. I said, you know, I've always loved trading. It's been my hobby. I think I'm decent enough at it. Maybe I should just do this full time and give myself a year. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back, get a, another job in aerospace. But if it does work out, I'll stay in trading. And that was like, I think, 2008. So that was about, what, 15 years ago. Turns out it worked out. And here I am today, still trading full time. So correct me if I'm wrong. Right? So from what I'm hearing is that you took part the World Cup, World Cup of Trading. You, you came in first place while doing it part time. Did I hear that right? Yes. Wow. So was <laughs> 2005, crazy. 2006, and 2007. So I was working full time then. And it, it wasn't just, you know, an engineering job. This was, it was upper level management at this company. I was probably one of the top three or four people at this company. So I couldn't, it was good and bad. It was good because what I did was I created trading systems that would only trade maybe at the market open and it, and they really didn't do much during the day. You know, I didn't have a lot of, I wasn't doing active trading during the day because I really couldn't, you know, I had a full-time job so I could check during lunch and, you know, maybe one or two other times in between meetings or something, I could sneak a look at the markets, but I didn't really trade that much during the day. And that actually probably helped me because I didn't try to, overdo things. You know, most people who start trading tend to overdo it and trade too much and take on too much risk. And I think having a full-time job actually helped me in that regard. Yeah, you should put somewhere in your bio, right? World Cup trading champion doing it part-time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So maybe, maybe you can share with us right today, like the audience, what is your, your trading methodology today? I know it's algo trading, but I think most of them some of them might not be familiar with it. So maybe you can expand on that. Okay. So algo trading, what, what it really means is you trade according to established rules. And these rules could be anything. It could be a when the price crosses a moving average, that's a buy signal. It could be when you see a doji candlestick and something else, that's a sell short signal. could be anything. The point... Okay is, and the idea is with an algo, you write down those rules and you program them into a trading platform. I use TradeStation, but there's a lot of other pieces of software out there that'll do it. You program the rules. So let's just take an example of a moving average crossover. If the close yesterday was below the moving average and the close today is above the moving average, then buy next bar at the market. So that would be an algo rule. And you could have the exact opposite for a sell short. You could put a stop loss in there, all kinds of variations. So you, you come up with that idea and then you program it and then you run what's called a back test on it or an historical test. So you go back 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, and you apply, you let the trading platform apply those rules to a chart of crude oil or 
a chart of Amazon or whatever you want to test. And it will quickly do it. And you'll come out and you'll say, wow, if I had done that and followed those rules, I would have made this much money and had these kinds of ups and downs. And then you know how historically it did. That That's really what algo trading is. And it's different than how a lot of people trade, which is a lot of people use charts and they'll stare at charts all day and they'll draw their support and resistance lines and trend lines. And they'll say, well, if the price, they'll watch it in real time. If the price breaks a trend line, I'm going to go short, that kind of thing. Or they'll look at order flow and say, oh, when the, the, there's a, seems to be a buying imbalance, I'll buy or sell. So those people trade a lot differently. They're more focused on what's happening right now and try to react to it. But they don't necessarily do the historical testing to prove that what they're doing ever worked. So that's the big thing is algo trading allows you to back test it and show that something has worked. Now the fallacy or the or the big drawback to algo trading is just because something worked for the last 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, doesn't mean it's going to keep working for the next one month, three months, six months, one year. It could be just a nonsense, you know, random luck type thing where it just happened to work the last 10 years, but going forward, it won't work at all. And that's where people get tripped up. They think, well, I had a great back test, therefore it should work going forward. And that's not the case at all. You know, the the disclaimer the U.S. government always has us put on all our slides and stuff says past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. And that's 100% true. But what I've found is when you backtest a certain way, you backtest correctly and do things like you don't over-optimize, which is... You know, or try to uh, put too many rules in your strategy and try to complicate, overcomplicate it. When you don't do things like that, there's a tendency for the back test to continue on and do good. It's not a guarantee, but the way I always describe it is, is you're shifting the odds in your favor a little bit. And a lot of times that's all you need. If you think about, think about gambling and, and, casinos, they have a small edge when you're playing roulette. You know, it's not a huge, they don't have a huge advantage, but they have a small one and it's always there and it works all through time and there's no way around it. So all they need are people to play it and eventually they'll be winners in the long run. So they don't, they can get by with a very small edge. And what I found in trading is a lot of times you don't need a huge advantage to do fairly well. You just need some advantage. So that's really, in a nutshell, what algo trading is and kind of how it works. Speaking of backtest, right, uh, this reminds me of a quote, right? Uh, I'm paraphrasing here by, by Jim Simmons, right, the one who runs one of the, I think, the most successful hedge fund in the world. He said that past performance 
is the best predictor of success. I think I came across one of his quotes and yeah, I, I really agree with that, right? Some more uh, coupling with what you say, if done correctly, that's uh, one of the best ways to kind of like assess whether something's likely to work or not. Right? But the context is that it has to be done in the right way. <laughs> right. Okay. And, you know, one way to think about it is if you run a back test and it shows it lost money every year for the last 10 years, would you even consider trading it? Probably not. Because you'd be like, well, this has never made money. Why all of a sudden now would it make money? So there's that part of it. The flip side to it is just because it did make money the past 10 years doesn't guarantee it will make money going forward. But if I had my choice between the two, or really, I guess there's three choices. You know the one choice one, back test is negative all through history. Choice two, back test is positive through history. Choice three, you have no idea. You didn't do any testing. You know, just from a logical point of view, which one are you going to take? You're going to take the one that was profitable in the past. You're, you're going to eliminate the one that didn't make money and the one that you didn't test. Well, you know, how much confidence would you have trading that? And yet I see that a lot where people just say, well, I think this will work. And then they just go and do it without doing any testing, which is crazy. But I guess it kind of explains why a lot of people lose money in trading. Also, I believe like one of the reasons backtesting, so many people don't do it is because they probably need programming knowledge and tools and resources to do it, which is add, adds on to the obstacles you know, to, to overcome. So maybe on, maybe later on we can talk about you know, what some of the tools and resources you know, that they can do to help overcome those obstacles. But maybe for now, I'd like to hear your thoughts. You know, As you've mentioned, there are, different ways to trade the markets, algo trading, discretionary trading, you know, order flow, et cetera. So why or what made you decide to go down with this approach? Probably because I failed so miserably at discretionary trading, which is, you know, looking at a screen and trying to, to make decisions in real time. I, I seem to be really good at making the wrong decision. So I'd be watching the chart as the day goes on and I'd be like, oh, now's a good time to buy. As soon as I bought, the price would fall. And eventually I kind of got smart to that. And I said, well, maybe whatever I'm thinking, I should do the opposite. And I actually tried that and that didn't work. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it was discretionary trading and just trade trying to trade to just some principles rather than rules. And, you know, you say, oh, when an uptrend, you always want to buy, look for buying opportunities kind of thing. That was just, it just didn't work for me. And so what I found was writing down rules and testing them seemed to fit my personality more. And I find that's true for a lot of people who are technically based, numbers based. So I'm talking like engineers, finance people, yeah, doctors. A lot of people I work with are, are medical doctors. What I don't get are people who are like social workers or philosophers or, you know, like English majors, people who are even like, I do get a few mu musicians, but even musicians a lot of times are more, I guess you'd say, feeling oriented or, you know, they go left brain, right brain, and left brain's more logical, right brain's more a feeling and emotion. Those kind of people, the right brain don't tend to do algo trading, but numbers people 
logic people that, and that's what I am. That's where algo trading, it really fits those kind of people. Nice. And maybe perhaps you can give us an example of a, of a trading system, right? So so the audience can kind of like understand this better. Of course, it doesn't have to be a trading system that you currently trade, right? Don't want to, you know, take your secrets, but maybe just a sample trading system so they kind of understand, oh, this is what uh, Kevin is talking about, or this is how this works. Yeah. Okay. So simple breakout system is a great example of that a lot of people will say, oh, breakouts don't work, but to catch long-term trends, which is a good way to make money, breakouts work great. So what you'd say, the rule would be, hey, if today's close, let's say you're working with daily bars, today's close is the highest close of the last 20 bars. So it'd be, if you think you know, every day, that's roughly a month. So if today's close is the highest close in the last month, I want to buy the next bar at the market. And conversely, if you're trading futures, it's easy to go short. And you could say, and if the close is the lowest close of the last 20 bars, sell short next bar market. So right there, there's your entry rules. And you could put a stop loss. You say, okay, well, if I lose $1,000 or you could make a volatility-based stop loss, a lot of different things. You could say, I'm just going to exit. or you could do a profit target. There's all sorts of things you could do. Or you could just say those those two entry rules are going to be my exit rules. So if I'm long and I get a short signal, I'll go short. And I'm always in the market, long or short. And with that kind of system, you're pretty much guaranteed to catch all the long-term trends. Because obviously... A long-term uptrend is going to have higher closes and higher closes because that defines a trend. So in that respect, if the trends are long enough, you'll make quite a bit of money during those. It's just those periods of time where the market goes back and forth, where you'll get a lot of false signals, and that will usually lead to periods of drawdown, which every trading system has drawdown. I see a lot of people out there claiming oh, hey, this approach has no drawdown. And a drawdown is actually just a loss from your peak equity. Every trading system has drawdowns. And as long as you can withstand the drawdowns, you'll enjoy those profits. But if you can't handle the drawdowns, if they're too severe or you know just too long in duration, then you might decide, well, hey, the profit that I'll get from this strategy isn't worth those drawdowns because the drawdowns ultimately, you know, the down periods and the flat periods, that's what kills people a lot of times in trading. A lot of people love to see new equity highs every day. I certainly do, but hey, there's times where you can go for months and be in a drawdown. I mean, I recall years of my trading where the first 10 months of the year, I was either flat or losing money. And then all of a sudden, the last couple months of the year, things just turned around and skyrocketed. And I made like a year's worth of profit in two months. But I had to endure 10 months of drawdown and flat, you know, flat periods. And that's really, really hard for most people. It's those drawdowns that, you know, they just, 
They suck the confidence out of you and they make you doubt everything. But if you can withstand them, you can get somewhere. And so that breakout system I just mentioned is a pretty good example of one that could make money, but would also have some, could have some significant drawdowns. Maybe just like to, you know, do a bit of clarification. So algo trading, you know, some people use the term systems trading, systematic trading, quantitative trading. Would you say that they all refer to pretty much the same thing? It's just a way or different way of calling it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different variations on it. So some people will, for example, consider algo trading using statistical rules and they find out, you know, they, they research past prices and they find out, Hey, Monday's a good day to buy and Wednesday's a good day to sell in a particular market. But again, it, no matter how they got the idea, it always goes down to rules and it's rules you can program and pure algo trading is just rules. So it, it doesn't have any discretion where you say, well, normally I'd take this trade, but oh, the Fed has an announcement today, so I'm not going to take it. That leads to a lot of issues, but you know, one, it invalidates your back test because you didn't do that in your back test. But pure algo trading is just creating those rules and then just following them and you can automate them. That's the nice thing. And you just let them run. And it is, it is not easy. A lot of people seen this a lot where people will say, oh, hey, just algo trade. You won't have any emotions. You just set the rules, you program, you turn on automation and just go with it. And the reality is algo trading, even if you're automated, still has emotions as long as you have real money on, on the line. Because it's the money that creates the emotion, you know, losing money and, and it hurts and making money is always makes people happier. And so you always have to deal with that, with algo trading. And from my understanding, your algo trading is for specific markets, like the futures markets, commodities, etc. Yes. So I, I mainly do futures markets and there's a few different reasons for that. One with futures, you can get great leverage as far as you, know, you can control a lot of coffee, crude oil, mini S&P futures. You can control a lot with a little bit of money. And so you can really get some, some outsized returns. Obviously, the downside to that is that leverage, when it goes against you, can really hurt. So you got to be careful with that. I also like it for the diversification because with, let's just take U.S. futures markets, you have six or seven unique sectors. You know, you have your eggs, your wheat, corn, soybeans, and you also have metals. You have your gold and your silver and your platinum. And those two, just as an example, a lot of times don't act the same. You know, they're under different fundamentals. And so you can create a gold algo. You could also create a different soybean algo and they could balance each other out. And when one's up, the other one might be down, but you combine them and you get a nice equity curve. So that there's that. And then for people in the United States, futures trading has huge tax advantage 
with the way they treat short-term gains and long-term gains. So for example, if you were to buy a stock in the US, if you hold it, I believe it's less than a year, it's considered a short-term gain and it's taxed at a higher rate than if you held it more than a year. They're trying to encourage people to hold it longer periods of time. But with futures, I could hold a futures contract for literally one second and a large person, let's say I make money in that one second and I exit for tax purposes, that's not considered all short-term gain. So there's a good percentage of it. I think it's a 60-40 split between long and short-term where a lot of it's considered a long-term gain taxed at a lower rate. So that's a huge advantage to trading futures. And then also a related thing is the bookkeeping is so much easier. Anyone who's ever done stock trading in the U.S. knows at the end of the year, you got to list all your buys and sells. And, you know, you might have pages and pages of that if you're active. With futures, it's literally one number you get from your broker. And you literally have to transfer one number to your tax form. It's your mark-to-market gain or loss for the year in that account. And it makes record keeping so much quicker and easier. So all those reasons, you add them up. And that's why I trade uh, futures. Got it. And I, I hear you saying, you know, I'll go for, you know, soybean and gold, stuff like that. So I'm guessing you trade multiple trading systems. So how many trading systems do you currently trade? So right now I actively trade about roughly about 30 to 35 strategies in various markets. I have a, a stable or a bullpen of about 200 strategies that every month I do some review and look at which ones I should be trading. And that's based on not only their performance, it's also based on things like their volatility and also the market sector they're in. So for example, just because I the last month I had all my crude oil strategies do great, doesn't mean I'm going to just trade crude oil, 30 crude oil strategies the next month. I want to be diversified because you never know when a, a trading strategy is going to either permanently or temporarily stop. I've had cases where I've had strategies that for a couple of years, they'll just go flat and they'll just kind of be up and down, not really doing much. And then all of a sudden they take off again and start performing well. So you can't predict what's going to work in the future. So what I do is I try to have a balanced portfolio of some eggs, some metals, some energies, some currencies, and try to be in a bunch of different markets at the same time. So I think a question that is going to be in the audience here is, man, Davey, how do you manage, you know, 35, 200 trading systems, right? So, so what's your take on that? <laughs> well, it doesn't happen overnight. I remember... This is probably 20 years ago. I remember building systems and at the end of the year, I'd say, okay, what am I going to trade next year? Oh, well, I have four strategies that I could use. So I really need more. And so you got to constantly do the research and development to build new strategies. And then over time, I've gotten, obviously gotten a little bit better at it. The tools have gotten a ton better. So now I can use some tools 
actually once one tool I use a, a student of mine actually wrote, he took some of my principles and made it so he automated a lot of things in development. So it makes developing strategies a lot faster, but you, you obviously you have to just keep developing. You also have to have, like you said, some kind of organization for how you're going to track 50, 100 strategies, how you're going to select which ones you're going to trade. And so there's a lot more to it than just developing the strategies themselves. But that's where it starts. I mean, if you if you can't develop strategies that make money in real time, you know, it doesn't matter if you have 100 of them or 200 of them. If you can't do that, you're not going to get anywhere. And that same thing holds true for position sizing because some people say, oh, well, it's all about money management and position sizing. That's very important. But if you don't have good strategies to start with, money management isn't going to save you. It isn't going to turn an unprofitable system into a profitable one. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot to it. But the, the way to really do it is just to start doing it small and say, okay, the next six months, maybe if I can develop one or two strategies, I'll be okay. And you do that every six months. Well, a couple of years from now, you might have five, 10 systems, strategies you could trade, and you're well on your way you know, to, to just building more and to trading more. So let's say, you know, you say you have like about 200 trading systems, like, kind of like at your disposal and you're trading about 30 to 35 right now. And also I'm hearing that you try to expose yourself to the different sectors, like maybe currencies, commodities, etc. because you just don't know which market will, will shine. So my question would be, you know, how do you determine, okay, this system will be trading commodities, right? Let's go with system A, B, C, D, trade commodities, X, Y, Z, trade maybe currencies. So how do you pick the systems to trade that specific sector? How well, do you teach to go? So the the way I usually develop strategies is already market specific. So let's go back to that breakout system example. I will test that on different markets and find out, oh, it only works well with crude oil. Okay, so that's now a crude oil strategy that will be part of my 200. Maybe it doesn't work on any other market. Well, then I'll never use it on any other market. It's got to work first on whatever target market and also target bar size. I've had strategies, I have plenty of strategies that work great with 30-minute bars, but you give them daily bars and the system falls apart. And you know, there's a lot of people out there who say, well, it's it's got to work. My strategy's got to work on every market or every bar size, or it's got to work in at least 10 markets. And if that's your criteria, more power to you. But my experience is that is really tough to do. It's hard enough to find strategies that work in one market. And now you're saying, well, it's got to work in 10 different markets. The reality is that those are very few and, and far between. And I've found more success being very market specific. So when I start looking at those 200 to trade every month, I already know the market, the bar size and the strategy itself. So that's 
you know, the combination of those three is what I'm tracking. And then what I'll do is I have some rules to determine, well, which of those 200 should I actually trade the next month, which in itself is, is really hard to do because you end up picking some that do bad and other ones that you left on the sidelines. And then you see, oh man, that one would have done really well. And there's a lot of, of hindsight where you say, oh, I should have done this. And a lot of second guessing of yourself. And, you know, that's just part of the territory, unfortunately. So you actually also develop rules to pick the trading system to trade in live markets. Did I hear you? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> there's so many that, to choose from. And yeah. And that ends up becoming almost as important or even as important as the strategies themselves. The, the good thing for people starting out, they don't really have to worry about that yet. They just have to focus on building the strategies and you're, you're trading a few different strategies. That's a great start. But eventually if, if you build a whole bunch, you're going to have that problem of which ones, which ones should I trade? So how do you know when a trading system is no longer working? And that's that's a great question. And it's funny that you asked that because it's a question that comes up quite a bit now. But I'll take you back, I want to say about 10 or 11 years ago, I wrote an article for a magazine. It was called SFO Magazine. It was related to brokerage in the U.S. that eventually went out of business because the founder of the brokerage brokerage was forging the financial numbers and basically stealing all the customer funds, and now he's in jail. But I wrote an article for them of when to quit trading a strategy, an algo strategy. And, and back then, this just tells you how the times have changed. I don't even think we were calling them algo strategies that long ago, but they were calling them systematic or mechanical systems. But I wrote an article about that. And at first, the editors were like, no, we don't want it. I said, why not? This is a good topic. And they said, well, we want happy articles, you know, showing great (laughs) strategies of people making money. We don't want to talk about what happens when a strategy goes bad and you lose money. That's awful. I'm like, yeah, but it's really important. And I finally convinced them to to print it. And the response I got was was pretty amazing. I mean, people were like, wow, no one's ever talked about this. And and so now here we are, you know, 11 years later, and it's a pretty common question. How do you know when a strategy is broken? And so there's a couple there's obviously a lot of different ways to look at it. One just as an example, you could look at the backtested drawdown. You could say, if going live, I ever have a drawdown like that, I'm going to exit. That could be your quitting point. You could do things like, hey, I, I've looked at the past 300 trades for this system, and it's never had more than four losing months in a row. Okay. That was its biggest drawdown. And now all of a sudden you go live and a little bit into it, you get five months in a row losing. Well, maybe that's time to put it on on pause because 
you know, maybe it's not working. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. One way I, I always used to use, I don't use it anymore, but I would print on paper an equity curve of the back test. Okay. And then I would also include the live trading or the real time trading of that system on that equity curve. And I'd post, I'd put it on a wall on the other side of my office. And if I could look at that chart and without knowing anything else, if I could tell when that system went live because the performance fell off, then I'd know, okay, that system's probably broken. But if I couldn't tell if it looked about the same as the equity curve, then I'm like, well, you know, the back test equity curve, hey, it looks pretty good. It's probably okay. Simple eyeball test amazingly works amazingly well. But the biggest thing and the biggest rule I've found is whatever approach you come up with with saying, hey, at this point, I'll consider the strategy broken and I'll turn it off. Write it down before you start trading live and put it somewhere where you will review it. Or if you have a trading partner, they will call you on it and say, hey, you said if this ever happened, you'd quit trading this system. Has this ever, has this happened? Because it, it, you know, if they hold you accountable. It's hard for you to say, oh no, it's never happened. The point of all this is you have rules beforehand and you stick to it and you just, you become as emotionless as you can. You know, you're going to be upset that you're going to have to quit a system because it's losing you money, but that's what you do. And it's really hard for people because what most people do is they start trading a system and they start thinking about the Lamborghini that they're going to buy. You know, they think about all the toys they're going to buy with all their trading winnings and things start going bad. You know, they go into denial and, oh, it's going to turn around and, oh, one more trade. I'll let it do one more. Then I'll turn it off. And either they let it just wipe out their account or they're so strict that, oh, I lost a trade yesterday. My system's no good. I, I've actually talked to people who run a back test and they say, I'm going live with it. And a week later, I check in with them and they'll say, well, it had two losing days, so I don't think it works. I'm like, well, your back test had losing days, multiple losing days, right? Yeah, but this wasn't what I was expecting, so I'm just turning it off. So, you know, people sometimes turn them off too soon. But the big thing overall, or one of the best ways, I would say, is just looking at the drawdown. And if you get to a drawdown that you never saw in back test, it's probably a good time to pause at least and just make sure that you want to move forward with that strategy. It could always recover. And then when it does, maybe that's time to turn it back on. But you really want to stop it from just bankrupting your account. I heard of a saying, right? It says that your deepest drawdown is always in the future, not in the past. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be a matter of time before whatever trading system the drawdown will exceed the previous drawdown. So do you have like maybe a buffer, like maybe 1.5 times the maximum drawdown, 1.2 times before you kind of like say, okay, time to reassess, time to pause or, you know, stop altogether? Yep, yep. I definitely used ones. I like 1.5. The, the problem I've seen with some strategies is when you look at the dollar amount, 
just assuming you're trading even one contract, sometimes the dollar amount becomes the bigger issue. And then you think, well, wait, I don't, yeah, it's one and a half times the drawdown, but I don't want to lose that much. The flip side, so you can go bigger. You can also go smaller. You could use one half of the max drawdown. Say at that point, I'm turning it off. And that just about guarantees you will turn off a system because it's half of what it was in the back testing. You know, reality is not going to be as good as the back test. There's a, a pretty well-known author and trader, Brent Penfold. He's written a couple of great books. And he mentioned that was his, this was a few years ago, so maybe he doesn't do it anymore, but that was his approach. And I said, well, you're almost guaranteeing you're turning off your systems at some point. Is that what you really want to do? And, and his response was yes, because I have more fear of losing a lot of money from a broken system than, you know, which would happen if I didn't quit early enough. So I'd rather quit too early than quit too late. So again, there's a lot of different variations you can do on it. My advice to everybody is come up with a way that you feel comfortable with and then stick to it. And that's the tough part. And also earlier, if I recall, you mentioned that you might pause the system and then as it recovers the drawdown, you might enable it again. So I'm guessing you're looking at things like maybe it recovers half the drawdown, you might consider, you know, turning it on again. Is that what you mean? Yeah. You know, so I'll, I'll still monitor strategies that have kind of underperformed for a while. I'll keep watching those to see if they come back. And also too, it just helps the more real-time data you have really helps when you're developing systems of figuring out things you might have done wrong in development and improving your whole development process. So it's good to track systems for a long time. And sometimes, yeah, they fall off and then they come back. But what I have found with those, psychologically, those are really hard to come back to and start trading again. And the example I always use, it's imagine your spouse or your significant other cheats on you. Okay. You're going to be devastated. And you, they, they say a little while time goes by and they say, Oh, I'm, I'm different now. I want to come back and get back together. You know, how likely are you to give them that second chance? And you're going to be kind of hesitant and, you know, it's going to be kind of scary. Same way with a trading system. It's a weird example, but this trading system has cost you money. You know, it failed you. It cheated on you, you could say. And now, <laughs> now it's come back and it wants to get back together with your money. And so it says, oh, now I'll make you money. I promise. You know, you're going to be a little hesitant. So the reality with coming back to any system that has lost you money is very, very difficult. So yeah, I also like to hear your, your take, right? So I know you trade a specific trading system for a specific market, but at the same time, there are other traders who actually trade like kind of like a basket of market. Take for example, uh, stock traders, they trade, let's say all the stocks in the S&P 500 or maybe a trend follower who trades all the different futures market, you know, trading breakouts and, you know, writing trends. So what's right. your... What's your take on, you know, trading a specific instrument, like let's say gold versus someone who trades a basket of such instrument like stocks or a trend follower who trades a basket of futures market? 
Well, I, I do think trading a basket is better because, you know, let's just take that example. Gold will be in an uptrend, but maybe crude oil is flat and not doing anything. So the more markets you're in, the more chance you have at profit. But at the same time, there is a downside to that, and it's you won't have as much upside potential. So back to that gold example, let's say you're you're doing a trend following on gold and gold just skyrockets and, you, and you're only trading that and you bump up your size and everything's going right. You could have great returns where if I'm doing it and I'm trading gold, but I'm also trading crude oil and I'm also trading the euro currency, my, my returns probably won't be as high as yours because you're concentrated in something that just happens to be performing really well. The the other side to that coin, though, is what happens if that gold strategy starts to fail. Now you've got all your eggs in that basket and you're going to suffer. You're more likely to get wiped out than somebody who has a diversified portfolio. So really, to me, it's all about risk and trying to minimize the risk and diversification is one way. As far as stocks go, I don't algo trade stocks. I'll do stocks for long-term, like retirement investing, that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm usually like buying a hold for a lot of things. And the reason is, if even with a, a basket of stocks, a lot of times when the stock market goes down, a lot of stocks go down. And there's a lot of correlation there where in the futures market, you might not get that same correlation. So I tend to avoid that. Building strategies for stocks is also a little tougher in ways because, you know, let's just say you wanted to start algo trading a stock. A stock. What are you going to pick? Chances are most people do Facebook. I'll do Amazon. I'll do Google. I'll do Apple. And why did they pick those? Well, those are popular, but they've also gone up. So right there, there's a bias. Even before you've started testing where, hey, if you just do a simple, you know, long-term buy bias, so you're on the long side, you're probably going to do okay with any of those stocks. And it's because you already sort of knew the data where something like coffee, you go to develop an algo for coffee, chances are you don't have any preconceived ideas or memory of, oh, the coffee market's been in a bull market for the last 10 years. You don't know that. So that's why like diversified futures to me is is just so much better. And yeah, if you can find a simple approach that works in multiple markets, that's always better. But like I said before, it, to me, it's not a requirement. I don't, I don't really care if I find a strategy that works in gold, but really doesn't work in silver. There's different players a lot of times in those markets, and that'll cause sometimes different strategies to perform differently. So it's not like a must-have, but at the same time, it is nice. And also, would you say that maybe that also affects the robustness of a trading strategy? Like a, a strategy is meant to trade multiple markets compared to a strategy that solely trades one market. The strategy that that trades multiple markets, would that be more robust in terms of like less likely to, to break down compared to the ones that just trade an individual market? Yeah, I mean, to a degree, I think that's true where 
you know, if you had a strategy that worked in multiple markets, the one thing it would do is it would give you more confidence for sure. So you'd feel, well, hey, this works in a whole variety of markets. But at the same time, I have found it's not like an on-off switch where, as I said before, it's got to work in five different markets or else I'm throwing it out. But that's just what I've uncovered over the years where that doesn't really matter. I mean, I have some strategies that work in only one market, but they work. And, you know, why doesn't it work on other markets? I don't know, but I just keep going with the one it works in. So, yeah, it's, I think it, the biggest thing, at least for me with that, if it worked in multiple markets, it would give me confidence that it would work. The one thing people have to watch out for, though, is they'll try something and they'll test it on 40 different markets and it works on three of them, let's say. So they'll say, okay, well, I'm going to throw the other ones away and I'll just focus on those three. Well, you got to be careful about that too, because that doesn't necessarily mean it's a, it's better. It just means it worked on three and you threw away all the bad ones. That's just a form of optimization. And So you got to watch out for that too. So there's a lot of little subtle things to it where it's not, not always that clear on how to do that. How long, and based on experience, how long does a trading system work right before it, it, it stops working? Do you have like an average lifespan that you kind of like realize? Well, and a lot of the research I've done, what I do is I will simulate running a strategy for three years of live real-time trading. And I feel if it does good for a three-year period, that's a good lifespan. And I've, I've had systems that I still trade that have run fairly well for probably up to like 10 years. I also have some systems that work great for one or two years and then kind of fall apart. I specifically recall in mini S&P system that worked great for, I want to say, five or six years. It was incredible. And then at the start of 2022, it literally seemed like somebody somewhere flipped a switch and (laughs) said, this strategy is no longer going to work. Because if I showed you the equity curve, it's, you know, almost not vertical, but it's, you know, up and to the right. And then all of a sudden it just fell off. And that was after five years. So my general rule, what I like in the way I've built my process is I plan on three years and if it goes longer, great. But, you know, I feel a three-year period is, is a good one to get like a return on the time you put in and the effort you put in. If you were building algos that only work for a week, You know, maybe some hedge funds can do it with big research departments where they say, hey, as long as we have something that works for a week and we do a hundred of these things and just keep them rotating, you know, for a typical retail trader, that's not really an option. So I look for longer term performance. Got it. And and speaking of, you know, trading strategies, how do you get new trading trading ideas? Great question. And that's that's a question most people who seek me out, come up with, they're like, I can't come up with ideas. You know, I'm not that creative. I don't know where to find them. And my response is always, 
ideas are everywhere. Just search the internet for ideas, you know, type in free trading systems and they'll give you rules. And there's all sorts of people offering all sorts of things. And a lot of them are free and you can just, hey, I'll code it up, I'll test it. But I don't like that. I'm going to add a rule to it or change the rule. That's what I usually end up doing. I see something, I put my own little spin on it, and I go and test it. The tough part about that is you have to realize that 90, 95, 99 things out of 100 that you test are not going to work. In, you know, they're not going to be profitable either in backtest or they're going to have too much drawdown. Most ideas fail. And that's, you know, it's kind of disheartening in a way, but it's also good because it just says, hey, finding good algos is not something that is necessarily super easy. And the way to think about it is, well, if it was super easy, everybody would be doing it and then there'd be no money in it, right? You know, think about like a restaurant, like a, a McDonald's. You know, if McDonald's was making $5 off every hamburger they sold and they were wildly profitable, well, somebody would come around and say, you know what? I'll make a hamburger and I'll only make $4 profit. So I'll be able to charge less. And then customers will flock to him. And then somebody says $3. And all of a sudden, all the competition lowers the profits. And that's what happens in trading is that everybody's fighting with each other. And so most ideas and most strategies just don't work long-term. And especially when you include slippage and commission, you know, when you include real trading costs, most ideas fail. But, you know, that being said, ideas are out there everywhere. You know, you can go to Amazon and just look at some books and, there's books with tons of trading ideas and you just go and test things and see what might work and what might not work. That's the way to really do it. From from what I've heard, right, I think Andrea Unger, I think he's one of the, the World Cup training champion. I won like three or four times. I can't remember. So from the way he does it, if I'm not wrong, he tends to identify the market behavior right, that he's trading. I think he does it through a simple test of like buying when the price breaks above the previous week high. And then to see whether he says a trending behavior or a mean reverting behavior. So if he knows a particular market has a trending behavior, then he'll probably, you know, adopt a trend following system for that market. So do you do something similar for yourself? Well, and that doesn't mean I'm right and Andrea's wrong. He's a good friend. And he and I, when we get together, we always argue and discuss all sorts of trading related things. We have different philosophies on a lot of things. One thing I always worry about with doing that, so let's just say you, you'd call up a chart of crude oil for the last 10 years and you'd say, oh, hey, this looks more like a trending market. Well, now, and then you go and you say, I'm going to create a trend system for that and test that same data to it. Well, now you've really run two tests on that same data. You ran that first test to determine what to do. And it said, oh, a trend, trend will be better. And then you go and do it. I don't like doing that. I like testing something on all the data once, like a one-time test, it either fails or it passes. Because I'm just definitely afraid all the biases that can happen when you see the data and then make a, a decision 
based on that. You know, a good example would be, let's say you're building a system today for current for a currency and you, in the back of your mind, you know that particular currency has been very flat the last year. It hasn't had much volatility. And you know that, but you're, you say, I'm just going to build a currency system. Maybe the rule you, some of the rules you come up with do something with that volatility. What has happened, even though you didn't do it intentionally, you've kind of let your knowledge of the markets influence what you're going to be testing and you're biasing your test results a little bit. And so what it does, it just makes your back test a little bit more unrealistic as far as what's going to happen in real time. Because real time, hey, tomorrow, the currency market could go crazy with volatility. How's your system going to perform to that? So that's the kind of thing you got to watch watch out for. But ultimately, Andrea does things one way. I do things another way. Larry Williams does things another way. You know, you do things your own way. Everybody has their own way. And ultimately, it's if whatever you do works in real time, that's the ultimate judge. So, I mean, I've had people tell me that I'm an idiot for doing certain things that I do. And like, well, okay, but it works. So you can call me whatever name you want. You know, I have data to, to back up what I'm doing. And that's the way I would I would tell people to treat whatever they do is, you know, whatever you think and however you think things should be done, make sure you prove it and verify it with real-time results. Got it. So from what I'm hearing is that you don't, you try not to have any bias to a certain market. So if you have any idea, you just simply take the idea, you convert it into a set of fixed rules and then just test that rules outright and see how it performs. Yeah, and I'll admit the one area where I fall off on that is with mini S&P futures, mini NASDAQ futures, any stock index futures, I a lot of times am biased to the long side. You know, and and that's partly because I know stocks have gone up over time, but partly because I think over a long period of time into the future, stocks are going to go up. But as far as other markets, I really like to be able to go long and short with, you know, basically what I call symmetric rules. If it's a 10 bar high breakout, you go long. If it's a 10 bar short breakout, you go short. I try, I try to be balanced that way where I try to get rid of as many biases as I can, whether that is always a good thing and it might actually make some development a lot harder, but I think it, it helps with the real-time performance. I can see where you're coming from. And, and by the way, Kevin, it's almost one and a half hours and I'm not sure if you are still wanting to go further, right? Or would you like to wrap it up? Because I know it's late on your end, so I'll leave it um, to you. If you have questions and you think it's worthwhile talking, I can keep going. Okay, great. Let's let's push on and I'll just, you know, we've tried to wrap it up by the two hour mark. So as, as I mentioned, right, you know, sometimes when I get started with podcasts, I ask questions, things usually exceeds, right, the stipulated timing. So thank you for being so accommodating, right? I appreciate it. Yeah. So so let's so earlier we talked quite a bit about algo trading and then people might be watching this and wondering, man, Kevin, you know, you know, I, I have no experience with algo trading. How do I get started? You know, there's so many tools and resources out there. So what would you say to such a person? Well, <laughs> it's, it's hard for a number of reasons. The first is 
even understanding that it's something you can do. So just as an example, what you should do is, is take stock of who you are and, you know, do you like rules? Can you follow rules? And, and you know, is that kind of mindset something you you like, you know, that objectiveness of doing things the same way all the time. A lot of people can't do that. And and that's fine. They shouldn't be algo trading. You know, they shouldn't even look at it. So, you know, you've got to really look at your personality and see if this fits. And so there will be a lot of people who say, well, I, you know, I like to come up with the rules on the fly and what I'm feeling. And, you know, I like to incorporate news events into my decision-making. Okay, well, then you're probably not going to be good at algo trading or, you know, it's not going to work for you. Maybe a different type of trading will work good. So that that's the first thing is to kind of take just an inventory of your likes and dislikes and also then your skills. If you are bad with computers, well, algo trading is going to be really tough. Yeah, you can write down rules on paper and you can manually calculate things, but computers make your life so much easier in that regard. So it's a good way to go. Programming. A lot of people just hear the word programming and they they, they just freak out. You know, that I can't program. Well, a lot of the programming language is now pretty simple. And some are actually even visual that you can connect blocks and and do that sort of thing. So for example, a lot of people use MetaTrader and I can't program in MetaTrader 4 to save my life, but I found a tool with a company out of Australia that basically you drag and drop boxes of a moving average box and, and that kind of thing. And you'd connect it and you'd make your algo visually and then you'd hit generate and it would generate the code for you. And then you just paste it in MT4 and it would work, which is really cool. Another thing you can do is there's a, a trading magazine. I actually write a monthly column from. It's called uh, Technical Analysis of Stocks and Commodities. And what they'll have in every issue is either an indicator, a system, or something that's been programmed in maybe a dozen different trading platforms. So it'll be in. TradeStation easy language. It'll be a Ninja Trader Ninja script. And it's either in the magazine or you can go online and look at it. And what I encourage people to do, if they don't know, you know, if they're scared about programming, they don't know what language is the best, is pick up an issue of that magazine and then go and look at the code, read the article, and then go and look at the code that creates whatever they're talking about. And Chances are some of them, you're going to look at them and you're like, I don't understand this code, this computer code at all. And you're going to be like, I can't program in that. And, you know, maybe all but one language will be like that. But then there'll be that one language where, where you'll be like, oh, okay, I can understand that. That's probably the one you should then pursue. And that leads to the next point is you got to get a trading platform, whether it's you know, I mentioned NinjaTrader. I use TradeStation. There's MultiCharts. There's a lot of trading view. There's a ton of stuff out there. But you want to get a platform 
that can do all the testing that you need to do optimization. If you want to do walk forward testing, you know, some of these terms will just go over people's heads, but you know, you should investigate how to do algo trading and then look for a platform that'll support you in that. And then you pick a platform, well, start learning it and see how to do things and start doing things and start learning what it can and can't do and its drawbacks. And it takes, it'll take a while to go from newbie to, hey, I'm comfortable with the trading platform. I'm comfortable writing some trading strategies. But once you get there, then the, the big thing becomes, how do I develop properly develop trading strategies? And unfortunately, almost all the trading platforms out there, they'll encourage you, oh yeah, program your rules. And then when you go to put it on a chart to see how it does, usually they'll pop up a box where you're given the chance to optimize a moving average length. What most people think as well, hey, that's got to be a good thing. You know, I'll find out, I'll tune the system to what works best. And, you know, I'll get a great looking back test. And that's what people do. And the trading software encourages it because when you're done, you'll see a nice back test and you'll think, oh, this is great. This will be so easy. I'll just go live with this. And that's like the totally wrong way to develop a system, a strategy. So, you know, once you get the basics of, hey, I got a platform, I know a language, I've written some strategies, some simple strategies just to test things out, then you really have to focus on building strategies properly. And then there's a lot to that. And then once you do that, then you have to learn how to automate it, which a lot of platforms is pretty easy, and start trading it. And then, you know, you'll end up working on your psychology more for things like, oh, should I turn this algo off? You know, last week it lost money and things like that. So I've kind of taken you through a bunch of steps there and they're, they're not necessarily super easy and they will take you some time, but it's a commitment. And, you know, it, unfortunately with trading, and I'm sure you know this, Rainer, it's so easy to say for anybody, just say, I'm going to start trading. I saw a YouTube ad. I'm going to start trading. They go online, open an account, do a wire transfer, transfer a couple thousand dollars into an account, accounts funded. Hey, now I can buy and sell. I can I can start trading. Oh, this is easy. Well, of course, they, they make it seem easy. But that's how people then view, oh, it'll be easy to make money. They make that leap from... It was so easy to open an account, it should be easy to make money. Where becoming a, a trader and being successful at it is, I like to say it's the hardest way to make easy money. So just as an example, to me, trading is a lot harder than what I was doing when I was in the aerospace world. And just to give people an example, I was in charge of quality assurance for a company. So we'd make components for a fuel pump. And one dimension, if it was off one thirtieth of the thickness of a sheet of paper, so take a sheet of Whoa. paper <laughs> and somehow cut it into 30 slices, 
you know, of width. I mean, you're, you're talking such small values. If it was off by even a 10,000th of an inch, you had to, we had to scrap that particular part. And, you know, if one escaped with that, it could cause a failure. So it was like high stress, you know, every day I'm thinking, okay, are we doing the best we can to make sure nothing bad gets out? So as stressful as that job was and as tough as that job was, to me, trading is harder. <laughs> and I tell people that and they're like, he's, he's full of it. He's lying. I wish trading was easy. And even after doing this for 30 years, I wish I could say, oh, well, now it's easy, man. I, you know, I just, I, I'm on the beach most days sipping a margarita. No, it's not. It's not that easy. And there's always new people coming in with new ideas and new tools, and they're constantly pushing everybody else. It's a real dog-eat-dog world. So, you know, back to your original question, which was how do I get started in algo trading? Keep some of that in mind that it's going to be a journey and it's going to take significant effort to succeed in it. And that's true with all trading. So I'm not trying to pick on algo trading or anything. You want to be a good I think that's true. trader. You've got to work at it, right? Yeah, it's true for trading, business, life, anything that's worth succeeding at. It requires time and effort because if not everybody will do the same thing and then your so-called advantage or age is eroded and you know you're going to be just, just like everyone else so yeah the commitment right. the effort it has to be there and and yeah you give a very good realistic picture of uh, what trading entails and I don't think most magazines are happy to publish what it's just said right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. scare away all the audience right no one's right. going to subscribe to the magazine and maybe just one thing to add because uh, I myself I can't program so what I do right in case the listeners are interested is I work with a programmer very closely we have a very close relationship so whenever I have ideas I just you know fit in the the, the rules right? because I, I have the ideas I need to translate it into a set of rules and then he executes the programming part and I kind of like just fact check to make sure all is well so that's another option for people who are interested to go down that route but if not hey you know learning a new programming language like what Kevin has mentioned sometimes you just look at the code you kind of like intuitively you would understand oh this is talking about the moving average you know so I guess you have to find the right language that suits the person yeah so yeah, and, and moving right, Kevin so so I yeah I was just going to say, working with a programmer is definitely an option. It's the one thing, two things people have to watch out for is, like I said before, most ideas fail. So, you know, your programmer is going to generate a lot of stuff for you that's going to be garbage. And it's not his fault, his or her fault. You know, it's just, that's just the way it is. It's my fault. Yeah. It's yeah. My fault. And, and <laughs> you know, the other part of it is a lot of times people who say, well, I'm the idea guy. I'm just going to give it to the programmer. A lot of people, unfortunately, get it in their heads that whatever idea they come up with, and I guess this this applies to people who use programmers and who program themselves, they have in their mind that their idea must work. And then they become sort of emotionally attached to it. That, yeah, I've got this theory of when this pattern happens with these indicators, this has got to work. And what they'll do is they'll make that a reality by just changing rules, adding filters, constantly tweaking it until they get something that works and it only works in back tests. So you gotta watch, have to watch out for that too, is, is becoming emotionally attached to your ideas. You've got to treat any idea you come up with as just, hey, this is an idea. 
may or may not work. If it doesn't work, I'll just move on to the next idea. That's how you got to do it. The emotional detachment, right? I believe that's what you're yeah. referring to. Like just, it's just a loss, right? Just move on to the next trade. Oh, it's just an idea. Let's move on to something else. Yeah. Yep. We'll see. I, I sense, right? You know, Kevin speaking to you, you have a lot of passion and love about trading. So let me just, you know, bring you onto the other end of the spectrum. So what do you dislike about trading? <laughs> uh, yeah, I dislike the frustration of just not being able to develop a system or a new strategy at will. Some markets are really, really hard to develop strategies for, and that gets frustrating. Drawdowns are killers. So uh, just as an example, last year I had what was a, a great performance year. It was almost a triple-digit return percentage-wise. And I went back and looked at it, and when I looked at the month-by-month results, I had four losing months. And actually, I was in drawdown six months of the year. So meaning at the end of every month, I'd look at, here's my equity compared to whatever the peak equity was. And at the end of six of those 12 months, I said, hey, at some point earlier in the year, I had more equity in my account than I do now. And that is terribly demoralizing. Even though I had a good year, I still had lots of losses and lots of days where I lost money in weeks and months and it gets to you. You know, everybody's so used to, okay, well, I go and work wherever I get a paycheck, you know, I'm paid every day, but trading, Hey, I go to work and you know, I work eight, 10 hours and I lose money. So (laughs) You know, I pay the boss instead of the boss paying me. How does that work? And that becomes really part of just the downside of trading. And the fact, at least for me, it never gets super easy where it's just, oh, man, now I can sit back. It's so easy. It's hard now. It was hard 20 years ago. And... You know, even though I like to think, well, I know I, I, I know a lot more than I did 20 years ago. Yet, you know, it's not like I know five times as much. So, hey, I better be five times as good of a trader. Doesn't work like that. So, that's some of the the downside to it. But those are are, except for the drawdown part, those are fairly minor. The drawdown part is just something that. You just have to learn to live with, and it's 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 frustrating. You know, anytime you lose money, it's not a happy day. But you got to realize that's just part of the game. And if you can't do it, hey, you know, then maybe look at something else. That's why it's my belief right, that yep, someone can be trading full time, but it helps immensely, right? If trading isn't their only source of income, so this way psychologically, I feel that they are more prepared to handle the drawdown, knowing that yeah. hey, if this month, you know, trading doesn't do well, guess what? I still can put foot on the table. Guess what? I have another source of income coming in, you know, to help me tight through whatever I'm going. So that's kind of my philosophy. Some, a lot of, some traders that I come across, they don't believe it. If you're a full-time trader, no, man, Rainer, you got to be trading full-time and that's it. No, you can't be, you know, having courses and stuff like that. But again, to each his own, but I believe that, you know, having multiple sources of income definitely helps with the trading psychology. Yeah, and along those lines, so I, I did a in-person event a few years ago 
And as part of it, I wanted to do a round table with anybody who identified as a full-time trader. And I said, you know, everybody wants to aspire to be a full-time trader. So there were like five or six people who came up and said, okay, ask me questions. And I was one of them. And the one thing they had in common, five of the six people had other income streams, just like you said. So, so for me, so for example, I trade full-time, but I also teach. And so I make money from teaching. There was another guy who sold signals on a website. There was another guy who was a commodity trading advisor. So he'd invest other people's money. Of the six people, five of them had some other source. And usually it was trading related. One guy, he was an ex-Enron trader. For those of you who remember Enron, the big energy firm, he is just a full-time trader. And he does very well. But he was the only one of those six. So what you're saying definitely agrees with what I've seen out there. All right, Kevin. And also, I, I think along the conversation, right, at the start, I heard you mention like, some setbacks and challenges you face. So maybe you can share share you know, with us right, what are some of the challenges that stick out to you like a sore thumb right now? What do you have to do to overcome it? Probably the biggest challenge, especially starting out, was just starting out with not enough capital to withstand drawdowns. And I guess a related part of that was would be not expecting the drawdowns that happened. You know, I usually way back in the day, I would get $5,000 together and open an account or fund the account. And I never expected to lose 30, 40% of that before making some money. And that turned out to be just a huge setback. And the reality is, if you look at professional managed futures funds and professional traders who publish results, you know, there's some databases out there for commodity trading advisors, you'll see a lot of them have had 40, 50, 60% max drawdowns. And, you know, as far as like your own personal trading, and for me, that was something when it occurred, I never expected. And so that was a huge setback and a huge deflator because you think, hey, I'm going to make money at the markets. And all of a sudden you've lost half your money. And that was probably the toughest thing to overcome is, is to realize that, okay, this is probably going to happen. And, you know, you can even just tell yourself, oh, okay, yeah, I'll accept it. My rule of thumb is whatever drawdown you think you can handle, the reality is you can probably handle about half of it before you start going crazy. So let's just say I can handle 50% drawdown. What will happen is you'll be trading, and this happened with me. I get to about 25% drawdown. I'd start to wonder, ooh, are these algos still good? Are they broken? Should I stop trading? Then it goes up to 30, 35%. What do I do? Oh, should I cut back? Should I turn something off? Should I just stop? And then by the time I got to 40, 45%, I can't handle it done. And you would never even get to your 50%. That's what happens with a lot of people. And it certainly happened with me. And so learning to, to handle drawdowns was the biggest setback was the drawdowns. And the biggest challenge 
was trying and learning to overcome those. And speaking of drone, I think one thing that is I think really mentioned is is how much of your net worth right to put in your trading account. Of course, if you're going to put like hundred percent or you leverage right, then the little bit of drawdown is going to make you have sleepless nights. But if let's say your trading account is a fraction of your net worth, maybe you know, 10, 20, 30 percent, depending how experienced you are, that helps the drawdown in, in at a certain level as well. Since you know not all your eggs are in one basket. Yeah, yeah I mean, I I have some students I've worked with who say, yeah, I'm. I'm going to put everything, all my retirement into trading. And I always caution them. I'm like, nah, you know, I, I, I don't. And they're like, you don't? I said, no, I, I have. And I mentioned it earlier. You know, I have stocks that are in my retirement funds. I real estate, you know, stuff outside of just trading funds. And it's all a diversification method. Yeah. If I was, let's just say I was 100% confident without a doubt that I could double my money every year in trading without any drawdowns. Well, yeah, then I'd put everything in trading, you know, because th- that would be a no brainer. But the reality is you, nobody knows that for sure. And so you've got to kind of watch out for it. You know, I see this a lot with people who try to go, I lost my job. I'm going to go full-time trading, but I have a, an account of whatever, $100,000 but I've also got to get my living expenses out of it. And I always caution people on that and say, well, just remember if you have a down month and then you have to take living expenses out of it, now you're in worse shape. Now the pressure's really on, are you going to be able to handle that? And a, a lot of people can't. So yeah, you can put a percentage, you know, whether it's 10%, 30%, whatever it is, but you know, I don't think I'd put all my money in anything because you just don't know the future. You know, you could say, oh, hey, I'm buying gold. Well, let's just say tomorrow, somewhere in South America, they they find this gold mine of gold mines where there's so much gold that gold is basically going to be like worthless because there's so much of it out there and it's not going to be a precious metal anymore. You don't know. It's a possibility. So, you know, you, you got to be careful. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, as, as the saying goes. And, and, and the fun fact is there's a lot of gold actually in space. Right? So if humans find a way to extract that gold in space, I'm not sure which planet back to Earth, I guess the price of gold, you know, we'll see. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I've, I've heard that about asteroids. You know, there's companies out there who are trying to figure out how to snatch asteroids and <laughs> mine them and bring them or bring them back. Just because of the whatever they gold or whatever precious metals or whatever they have, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So okay, Kevin, let's move on to the closing section because you know, as just promised, I'm going to keep this two hours there about. So, okay. what does your daily your daily routine look like right now? Okay. So my daily routine, since I'm, I also I teach a course. So, I wake up. I help get the kids ready for school or at least wake them up. They're all teenagers. So I don't have to get them ready, but got to bang on the door. Sometimes they get up, but uh, <laughs> you know, the first thing I'll always do is check my positions for my automated systems and just make sure things are in sync. You know, people have this mistaken idea that, Hey, once I automate something, everything will work fine. There's all sorts of things that go wrong. You know, orders get missed because there's an internet disconnect, the temporary one. And 
you know, things get recalculated sometimes. There's all sorts of stuff. So you got to check your positions. And then, you know, throughout the day, I'm usually watching that. If I go out somewhere, I either have a laptop with me or a tablet or my phone where I can get into my trading and I can see, okay, am I synced up with my positions and that kind of stuff. So I'm doing that ongoing through the day. Like I said, since I'm teaching a course, I'm usually answering student emails, doing things along those lines, or creating new course material or doing research. You know, and so I'm in a unique position because I can do research both for my own trading and then the real good stuff I can share with students. So, you know, like like back a few months ago. I finished up a study where I ran 50 million back tests and it took months to run, but I got some really neat results out of it. And so then I used that in my own trading, was able to also share it with students. So ongoing research, ongoing strategy development, that's a big part of my day too. But the other nice thing, doing it full time. So I, I do it from home. So, you know, my office is always here. And that's good and bad because, you know, like right now, my time, it's almost 11 p.m. at night and here I am still working. But that's what happens. I wake up in the middle of the night. I might work on a trading system at three o'clock in the morning. So a lot of times my schedule becomes kind of chaotic because I just work whenever I feel like it. And at the same time, I have the freedom that, hey, I don't have to do anything today other than monitor my positions. I can go have lunch with a friend and make it a long lunch. Or, you know, I could do a doctor's appointment and not have to worry about things. So there's a lot of flexibility in being a full-time trader along with the responsibility. But, you know, if I had to boil it down, I would say roughly half my time that I'm working during the day is is working on my own trading, either through monitoring positions, which typically doesn't take that long or just trying to figure out new ways to do things, new portfolio approaches, new strategies that I'm testing. So there's a lot of that that goes on. I love it. right? And on top of it, since your children, they're all teenagers, they don't really need your attention right now compared to when they were young, right? Right, right. And it's just good and bad because, you know, you love the, you love the times when they needed you for everything and you They'd see you come home from school and, you know, that kind of thing. They'd come <laughs> running to you. Now it's like I have to hunt down in the house. Where are you? Oh, you didn't even say hi to me today. Oh, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I guess it's there's a balance between that and it's part of getting old with the kids, right? <laughs> My time will come soon. Yep. And, uh, yeah. Another question I have for you is a pretty fun question. I like, to, I like to ask this. What has been something that you've purchased for below a hundred dollars that has made a big difference to your life. Hmm. Something that I've purchased below a hundred dollars. Well, this was right around a hundred dollars and this was a recent purchase. So it was, I got it during Amazon prime days. It was an ice maker. It's weird, you know, cause everybody has, and I have one too, an ice maker in the refrigerator, but this is, what it creates are little chewy ice nuggets. And if during the video you see me drinking, I'm actually drinking some iced tea with those little ice nuggets and they're chewable. 
So you chewable. Can, okay. It, it's just something I've always chewed ice my whole life, but you know, you get that hard ice and it almost breaks your teeth. But this is like chewy ice. And it was, I remember telling my wife, I was like, Hey, do you care if I buy this? It's around a hundred dollars. She just kind of looked at me like you're buying an ice maker. I'm like, yeah, but what it, are you five years old? <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. But and now my, my kids kind of like, what are you doing? I said, try it. And they're like, oh yeah, it's chewy ice. And so it, it's like one of those purchases that is just so bizarre, but it's actually like really good. And so I'm like making cups of ice every day just so I can chew on it. It probably helps me from keeping, keeping me, keeping the calories down from eating food, you know? So maybe instead of eating food, I'll just chew ice and I get the same effect. I don't know. That would be a great investment. Yeah. I can see the joy in your face really as you're telling me about this ice maker. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, 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 uh, it's a pretty neat little thing. Okay. So before you go, Kevin, where can the audience find you if they'll learn more about Elgo Trading to learn more about what you do? Where can they find you? Sure. You can go to my website. It's KJ Trading Systems, all one word, dot com. If you go to YouTube, you can just type in my name, Kevin Davey. And my channel will pop up. It's called Algo Trading with Kevin Davey. You can also find me on Twitter. My handle's KJ Trading. But those are all easy ways to get a hold of me. Probably the, the most popular with your viewers will be the YouTube channel. And like I said, if you just type Kevin Davey, I should be like right up at the top. There's a couple other Kevin Davies out there. One's a brewer, brews beer. One's an actor. But... I think I know I'm the only Kevin Davy trader. So even if you did Kevin Davy trader, I'll definitely pop up. Yep. I believe it should be quite easy because I tried that myself, Kevin Davy <laughs> trading, and you are at the top of the list. So it shouldn't be difficult to find you. And yeah, so Kevin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I know it's late at night. I mean, close to midnight for you and you're still sharing, you know, such deep techniques, strategies, right? On how you run Elgo trading. Once again, Kevin, I appreciate your time. Thank you so hey, much well for being on the show. The first guest, I really appreciate you and, you know, being so quick to respond. Thank you so much once again, Kevin. Yeah. Like I said, Rainer, thanks for having me on and thanks for me being the first. I mean, I know you have a, I've been following your YouTube channel for a while and I have a lot of my students who mention you, you know, you're a pretty popular guy and it's just, it's great to be a part of this. So I appreciate it. Pleasure is mine, Kevin. Have a great evening. We'll we'll be in touch and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye, my friend. Take care. We appreciate you joining us in this session of Trading with Rainer Show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit tradingwithrainer.com for more resources related to today's session. That's tradingwithrainer.com. Until next time, good luck and good trading.